Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Most of you know we've been unpacking the Apostles' Creed for a while. We took a break last week, and uh, those of you who are here, I know we're blessed as I was to hear uh, Joe Carter's story uh, about uh, organ donation and his his story. If you're like me, I knew a part of that story, but I didn't know, and I know he didn't tell the whole thing, but I was blessed to know a lot more about his situation, and um, it was it was deeply moving. So thank you again, Joe, for doing such a good job last week. So we left Jesus crucified. Um, that's where we stopped last time. Um, we talked about Jesus being crucified, and we, we paused last time in that phrase in the Apostles' Creed to think about what the church has taught uh, about the death of Jesus. Um, and we tried to look at Scripture a little bit to remind ourselves that Scripture has a lot to say about what God might be doing in and through the cross of Christ, um, much more expansive than we sometimes think. And so that when we're uh, standing and affirming uh, this, uh, this great creed, we're trying to remind ourselves that we're not just saying a bunch of words that are sort of dusty theology sitting on a shelf, but we're actually, we're actually confessing, we're actually proclaiming um, in, in whom it is that we place our trust. Who is this God that we uh, devote our lives to, that we commit ourselves, commit our lives to? And there's a lot to say, and so uh, in this highly distilled creed that we know as the Apostles' Creed, uh, that there's a lot to take in. And so today, um, after just doing one word, crucified, we're just gonna go crazy today. Um, and we're gonna do, like, Jesus was crucified, died, buried, descended to hell or to the dead, depending on which translation. So that's really ambitious. Um, but um, particularly the last phrase, which as you know is uh, a little controversial, which you can tell just because depending on which Methodist hymnal you pick up, it may or may not be there. Um, or there may be an asterisk, right? It's like, uh, you know, like you're an athlete, you know, you, you have the home one, record, but there's a little asterisk by it, meaning, well, not really. Um, um, so, so we'll get to that. Um, and it might seem like, well, there isn't much there, but we've discovered um, over the last couple of months that there's always more there than we think. And so, so let's get right into it. So uh, Jesus uh, was crucified, died, was buried descended to the dead. So that he died doesn't seem all that controversial to us. It's pretty easy to just kind of blow right past that. Uh, of course he died. Um, but as we found out when we started studying the creed very early on, this was controversial in the first uh, several centuries, including when the creed is being put together. Uh, you recall that this creed that we have here um, began 
being put together in the first several centuries, but doesn't take its final the form that we have until the eighth century, even though most of the pieces are in place by the fourth century. Um, and, the, and the challenge was, as you'll recall, was many of the early Christians wrestled mightily with the fact that Jesus was fully human, right? That Jesus was fully human. And so it was, it was controversial enough, it was disturbing enough that Jesus was on the cross suffering. I mean, what, would it, what does it mean for God to suffer like that? If Jesus really is fully God and fully human, it's an awfully hard thing to, to hold together. What does it mean that Jesus is suffering? And so they're, they're scrambling. They're scrambling, looking through their, their scriptures. And as you know, they land often in Isaiah. Uh, the, the whole notion of the suffering servant in Isaiah's history, particularly around Isaiah 53. And so this, is, this was their scriptures, right? I mean, the early Christians who were Jews, for the most part, are, are scrambling to look at their scriptures to see how do we make sense of Jesus? Um, now, we have 2,000 years of hindsight, and so it seems easy to us. They didn't have that, right? They're trying to figure out what does it mean that Jesus suffered? What is God doing in that? And so we tried to talk about that last time. And we said that for a lot of people, that there, were some, there were some Christians who said Jesus didn't suffer, right? It actually, um, somebody else took his place, all right? Um, that just seems so bizarre to us, but you have to understand that people just had a hard time getting their heads around it. And if they had a hard time believing that Jesus suffered as a human being, they certainly had trouble that he died. That he died. I mean, dying is, as we all know, is that clear limit to human life, right? And we all know it's a limit to our historical existence, and we know that we will all reach that limit. We don't know when, but we know we will. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But what, is it, what would it mean if God takes human flesh in some mysterious way? What does it mean for Jesus, who is fully God, and what does it mean for Jesus to die and to confess, for us to confess that this God who meets us in the flesh of Jesus Christ, that he dies? Now, some early followers of Jesus said, you know, he couldn't have. He just, he just couldn't have. Right? He just he couldn't have he couldn't have died. He couldn't have. I mean, his existence, his earthly historical existence, couldn't have come to an end. And yet, the early church says, "Yes, Jesus' historical existence. There, there, there is, as far as the historical Jesus, who walked the earth just like you and me. There was no happy ending." <laughs> And you might say, well, didn't he resurrect? Isn't that a happy ending? We aren't there yet. 
that certainly informs this, right? But for those of us who want to think this, this is what the early church wanted to say. And we'll, get, we'll, we'll explain this more when we get there. But the resurrection does not erase Jesus' death. It does not undo death. It's really important to get that clear. Jesus is not resuscitated back to earthly life. That's not what the resurrection is. Jesus goes through death. Death just like yours and mine. And God raises him on the other side of that into a different kind of existence that you and I have not experienced. Okay. That's important to get clear about. Because sometimes when we think about... And the early church had trouble with this too. It's like, but isn't Jesus just sort of pretending to die? I mean, doesn't he know? I mean, how does he know what death is like, like my death is like, if he knows on the other side of it, he's going to get back up? That's not like my life. I mean, I'm trusting that will happen. Well, Jesus is trusting that that will happen too. Jesus doesn't resurrect himself. God raises him from the dead. After three days, Jesus doesn't say, just kidding, I'm back. No. I mean, remember, when Jesus is in the garden, he's asking God, you know what, if there's some other way to do this, let's do it some other way. Right? I mean, Jesus is fully human. He's, he's got some anxiety. And that makes us uncomfortable. Right? It makes us uncomfortable. Um, but would he fully be human if he didn't have a little bit of anxiety about what comes next? He's trusting. He does say, not my will, but yours be done. He does say that. But the fact that he says, you know what, if there's another way for this to happen... I'd be happy for that to happen. So he, he dies. He really dies. And that's, that's our, each one of us, that will be our last earthly act. Okay, it will be. I hadn't thought about this till this week. I'm, I was an English major and... Um, college. I'm, uh, I'm kind of a language geek. Um, I never thought about the fact that the verb die does not have a passive voice. Right? Um, you, you can be killed. I, I can be killed, but I can't be died. Right? No one can die. No one can die do that to me. That's what I do. I hadn't really thought about that. Right? Um, so Jesus is killed. Right? But he dies. It's, it's his last earthly act. Just like it will be the last earthly act for each of us. That is not unfamiliar to God. Buried. 
this is the last thing that people who love and care for us will do for us on this earthly plane. This too was done for Jesus. His body was taken care of. People came to mourn him. We've all been there, right? We have all buried people that we would have rather not buried. But we honored them. This is our last chance to honor them after they died. And so we did. And so Jesus' friends did as well. That experience too is not foreign to God in the flesh. So Jesus experiences human life. The early church was very clear. Jesus is fully human, which means he goes to the very limits of human existence. He's died and buried. And then the next phrase, descended to hell, or descended to the realm of the dead. Now this is a phrase that's only in the Apostles' Creed. It's not in the Nicene Creed. And it's not even in the early, what's sometimes called the Roman or Jerusalem Creed, uh, on which the Apostles' Creed is largely based. And you might think, well, where does it come from? And why is it there? And why is it not in the other? And why is it sometimes in my hymnal and not in my other hymnals? And why is it when I go and say the Apostles' Creed in the Catholic Church, it's there. When I go to the Presbyterian Church, it's there. When I go to the Lutheran Church, it's there. But the Methodists don't really know whether they want it in there or not. <laughs> well, let's talk about this. Um, it's, it's kind of a fascinating historical question, but it's also... It, it's not just historical interest. It, it has something to say to us today. And so, um, yeah, if you find yourself in a setting where it's said, uh, I'd like for you at least to know what's going on there, what's at stake in what we're saying there. Um, the early church uh, was clear that Salvation only comes through Christ. But once you start thinking about that, it raises all kinds of challenging questions. If salvation comes only through Christ, what do you do with what's sometimes called the faithful righteous before Jesus? Like the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the faith, what we might call the Old Testament faithful. What do we do with them if salvation ultimately comes through Christ? And so the early church, you'll recall that one of the 
views of what Jesus does in the cross is that he defeats the powers of sin and death. And one of the ways that they envisioned this was that in that time between Jesus' death and his resurrection, he storms the gates of hell and liberates the faithful who lived before Jesus. And you may recall, probably don't, even those of you who were here, um, I don't remember when it was. Uh, one time we were talking about the iconography of the, the church. Um, and that one, this is a really powerful icon picture that shows what sometimes is called the harrowing of hell. We talked, we showed Jesus reaching down into the depths of the dead and, and grabbing Adam and Eve by the wrist, right? And, and pulling them out of the realm of the dead. Um, they weren't pulling themselves out. They don't even get to reach out for Jesus. Jesus grabs their wrist just to remind you that they're not doing anything. This is pure grace. Okay. Um, now you might say, well, that's a lovely idea. Um, and I can see how that might or might not solve this question about what do we do with uh, the people of God before Jesus. But what, what scripture would possibly uh, defend that? Because we've said that the creed is a kind of distillation of scripture. It's not just people sitting around making stuff up, um, which I think is what most people think theologians do. I can say that because I am one, so I know what people think. <laughs> right? We just kind of make it up as we go. And hope nobody checks. <laughs> right? Hope they just take our word for it. Well, if you weren't, didn't want to just take people's word for it. Um, and this is, this, is part of the, this is part of people's uneasiness with it because although there are passages of Scripture that might support this. They're not, there's not a lot. There's not a lot. It's not like a major theme in Scripture. But it's also not completely absent. People didn't sort of think of this just on their own and then go scrambling looking for Scripture. Um, so let's look at a couple passages, just because we should. Um, two of them, two of the primary ones, are in the little book of 1 Peter. That's toward the end of your New Testament. Uh, the first letter of Peter in chapter 3. Uh, Peter says this, verse 18. For Christ also suffered for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey. That's a kind of odd passage. Um, but some early Christians, some of the church fathers and mothers, took this as that Jesus was descending to the dead during his time between his death and resurrection and preaching the gospel to those who'd never heard it. 
And just a few verses later, in chapter 4, you sort of get the same idea. He says, but they will have to give an accounting. He's talking about those who have sinned, talking about his present time. They, those people in our midst now who are sinning like the Gentiles will have to give an accounting to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was proclaimed even to the dead, so that though they had been judged in the flesh as everyone is judged, they might live in the spirit as God does. So what does it mean to preach the gospel to the dead? Right? Um, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, similar kind of thing said here. This is verse 6. and following. When he gets to verse 9, this is talking about Jesus ascending. Um, when Jesus ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. This is the, one of the verses that talks about Jesus um, defeating the principalities and powers that he, that he made captive of the powers. And then it says in parentheses, when it says that Jesus ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lowest parts of the earth? Right? He who descends in the same who is ascended far above the heavens. So there's this notion that Jesus descends to the lowest parts of the earth. And then you also have that passage in the opening of the, uh, the first chapter of Revelation where it says that uh, Jesus has been given the keys to death and Hades or hell, okay? Um, so that somehow he has the keys, he can unlock that. Um, so that's not a huge amount of scripture. Um, but those, those are the primary texts um, that Christians had used when pressed to talk about why does it mean that Jesus descends to hell? Now to be clear, because um, this is one of the problems that, that that messes us up. Um, when you and I think of hell, um, we're thinking of, a lot of us anyway, we're thinking of uh, hell as our imaginations have been shaped primarily by medieval uh, art and Dante and other kinds of things, uh, where hell is a place of eternal torment for the damned. Okay. Uh, but the word that you tr is translated in as hell uh, in your scripture um, typically is uh, one of two, it's referring to one of two things. In the Greek mind, it was Hades, and in the Hebrew mind, it was Sheol. And in those cultures, what that was is that was the, that was the place of the, the dead. That's where the dead went. It was this kind of shadowy existence. Okay was a kind of shadowy existence. And so, again, it's always hard to know. This is one of the challenges of being a Christian. It's always hard to know um, how, how do we think about 
other people's world view. So certainly what the church was confessing and that Jesus somehow descends to hell or the place of death. It's not that Jesus is going down to where people are, where the damned are being tormented. That, they wouldn't have had that view. This was where all the dead went, to Sheol or to Hades. Okay? Um, and the sense was that Jesus was going there to the dead. Now, this is what the early church thought. Um, now, as this sort of moved along, uh, people like Martin Luther, who you know the, we celebrated his uh, Reformation Day uh, a couple weeks ago, 500th anniversary, all of that. Um, Luther actually picks up on the early church. He thinks that makes a lot of sense. He's, he's not getting rid of this. He's, he's fully on board with this. He thinks this is an important thing. Um, because he thinks that God's defeat of the principalities and the powers uh, that's partly revealed in this harrowing of hell uh, is an important thing to hold on to. It's interesting, the other primary Protestant reformer, John Calvin, um, is not as comfortable as Luther with this. Um, and so he goes a different direction with it. Um, which reminds us there's more than one way of thinking about what it might mean to descend to the dead. But notice that for Martin Luther, uh, Jesus' harrowing of hell is already part of his victory. Right? It's already, Jesus in that act is already doing something to, li to bring liberation so it's, it's already a kind of foretaste of Jesus' final victory over death. It begins in hell, begins in the realm of the dead. For, for Calvin, actually descending to the realm of the dead is not Jesus' victory, but it's, it's the final depth. It's the deepest you can go because the realm of the dead for Calvin is, is the place where God is, is absent. Okay? The place where God is absent. And this picks up on the Hebrew notion that in, in Sheol, uh, one of the reasons that the Jews um, were frightened of Sheol was because there you couldn't praise God. You didn't have communion with God. And for, for Jewish people, I mean, that was who they were. And so um, there's this notion that somehow they were cut off from that. And so for Calvin, for Jesus to descend to the realm of the dead means that he went all the way to being abandoned by God. And it's a kind of echo of Jesus' cry of dereliction of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, Jesus even experiences the abandonment of God that, that people in their day thought you had experienced after death. That Jesus went that far. And so, it's interesting. It's a, it's a slightly different emphasis. And I don't think we have to choose. I mean, I think there's truth to both of these. Um, which I think partly... Uh, explains why the church has not been completely settled on this.
Um, but I think the fact that it says something powerful, and, and this is certainly why Wesley was, Wesley was confused himself. I mean, uh, he's pretty honest about it. Uh, he, he's kind of double-minded about it. Um, at one point, uh, the, United, the, the Methodist Church in Wesley's day um, had the full Apostles' Creed with this in there. Um, and then Wesley was a little nervous about it, and so uh, that part of the creed was taken out, but he kept it in like the daily prayer service, and he kept it in the baptism, baptismal liturgy. Um, but by the end of the 18th century, by about 1794-96, uh, the Methodists get rid of the phrase, and stays out for about 150 years or so. Um, and then it comes back in, in the 19th, uh, in the 20th century, um, primarily because of Methodists' uh, interchange with Christians from around the world and outside of United Methodism, and realized that other people saw that there were good reasons, there was something important here, and so it came back in. Um, and then it comes in, and comes, it just depends on which hymnal you're using, right? Whether you've got the 1989 version or you've got some other version, um, might have an asterisk might not have it at all. Um, so why does any of this matter? Let's get to that as we close. For all three things, died, buried, descended to the realm of the dead. Well, just to echo what we've already said, but we should say it clearly, that we don't have to have any doubt that God is, has chosen to be in full solidarity with us to the very end, to, to the limits of death and maybe even beyond, right? I mean, that's part of what the descendant to the dead means, right? Whatever lies beyond death, Jesus has experienced that too. So that there's no human experience None. That is foreign to God. God. God is not afraid to go anywhere that we've been asked to go. God has been there. And that, that should, for all our anxiety, understandable. I mean, if Jesus was anxious about it, I don't think we have to beat ourselves up about this. Even Jesus has moments when he wishes it might go some other way. Right? But Jesus goes through it, and there should be some comfort, not just some, maybe a great deal of comfort, to know that the one that we worship and serve didn't just go part way with us. Didn't just come and pretend to be human. Wasn't some kind of charade. But that Jesus comes and is fully human and experiences human life to the limit of human existence and beyond. So that experience is at the very heart of God. It's not just human experience. And that should, that should give us great 
give us great comfort. Another thing it should remind us of, and we could, we could talk two or three weeks for this, but we'll just mention it briefly. That God does this, that God is in solidarity in this way, reminds me in ways that I'm uncomfortable of, of the depth of my sin. Right? If God, if God really is dealing with our sin in some mysterious way that Scripture tries to articulate, but is clear, doesn't exhaust. It's easy to think that, you know, everybody knows they're a sinner. That's not really true. Everyone doesn't know they're a sinner. Um, and certainly most people don't know the depth of their sin. Um, but if I look into the face of Jesus Christ and realizes that he chooses to go through this for me because my sin demands it, then I'm not just sort of messed up a little bit around the edges. Okay? God doesn't go to this length because I'm a pretty good guy, but I've got a few, you know, rough edges that need to be filed off. I mean, I'd like to think that. I mean, I'd like to compare myself with really, really bad people and think of myself as really pretty good. But the one who was crucified, dead, buried, and descended to the realm of the dead, if you really sense what God is doing there for us, then it doesn't allow me to sort of let myself off the hook the way I'd like to. Last thing. If God is willing and we know this because we've seen it in the person of Jesus Christ who descends to the realm of the dead, to the, to the realm of God-forsakenness. It seems to me that says something, perhaps, to us. If God in the flesh who dies is not afraid to go to the God-forsaken places. Then it seems to me that those of us who confess this creed, who say that we commit our lives to this God, seems to me we too ought to be willing to go to the God-forsaken places of this world. And there are many. I don't want to go there. I'll be honest with you. I'd rather remain comfortable. I'd rather remain safe and secure. Um, I'm not sure we have that option. If we're standing up and saying, this is the God that we worship and serve, the God who will not, who, the God who does not believe the God who does not believe that there are 
people and places beyond redemption. That God will go to any length, even to the realm of the dead. God will go to the realm of the dead. Where, I mean, this is a challenge for me. I mean, it's, it's easy. I mean, it'd be easy to sort of get wrapped up in the historical or the biblical thing and think, you know, I just don't know if that's biblically based or, you know, the, the church has sort of wrestled with all these years. I just, I just kind of, you know, I won't say that part or I'll be happy it's got an asterisk on it. But I'd like for us I, mean, I know when I say the creed the next time, one of the things that I want to be convicted about is that we're standing up and affirming that we believe that God will go to any lengths to redeem that which is God's. Are we willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? Or am I too easily willing to give up on some places, some people, who are beyond redemption. This creed does not allow that. Um, because this God does not allow that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not allowed the luxury of giving up on those people and places that God will not give up on. Let's pray. God of astonishing grace and mercy. We are humbled, brought to the point where we are largely without words to give you thanks and praise for the links that you have gone to bring us back into your life. May we not be satisfied to simply give you thanks and praise for your redeeming us. But may we also feel an abiding conviction that comes from your work in and through Jesus Christ, that by your Spirit you not allow us to give up on the places that we would so easily think that you have given up on or that you should give up on, or that you tell us you have not given up on. May we be known as the people who are willing to go anywhere, reach out to anyone, because we are your children seeking in some small way by the power of your spirit to bear witness to your love for all of your creation. We pray this through the one who went through to the very limit of human existence for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.